Hello, and welcome again to Forefront 360, where we take you all around the intersection of the arts and the Christian faith. I'm Richard Chrisman, one of the leaders of Forefront, and I'm very pleased to welcome my special guest today. Joining me is painter Josh Thiessen. Welcome to the show, Josh. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Rich. We're so thrilled to have you, and I am absolutely thrilled to introduce you. Uh, Though, before we get into anything, I'm just going to break our mold and hit you with our traditional interview lightning round questions before we do anything. Um, so for those of you who might be listening to your first episode here, it's a custom here on Forefront 360 that we begin artist interviews with a few lightning questions. They're really fast. We're going to ask Josh a bunch of short questions with you know relatively short answers just to help us get to know, you know who he is a little bit before we dive into the meat of things. Is that cool with you, Josh? Definitely. This will be fun. Awesome. Awesome. So no, no bio yet. No, some, some people don't know anything about you yet. And here we go. Okay. What is your favorite season? Definitely the fall. I love just the earth palette and the colors that of the leaves. It's just a beautiful season. Good. I love fall too. That is wonderful. What's your favorite place that you have ever lived? Uh, well, I enjoyed living in Russia because they have such a rich heritage of the arts and it just is infused the poetry, the ballet. But I, you know, also really enjoy where I live here in Canada, um, in southern Ontario. I'm down the street from Niagara Falls and Lake Ontario and tons of hiking trails. Um, so many birds in my backyard studio uh, that are, yeah, it's, it's a treat. I'm going to break the lightning a little bit here. And, you know, I got to say it. Uh, we're so excited that Josh is in Ontario, Canada, only two hours from where we are right now in Rochester, New York. Pretty exciting. We've, uh, you know, in Rochester, New York, we're not, you know, sometimes the artists we talk to live, you know, kind of far away, New York City, California, whatever. Very excited to have someone. We could drive. If the borders were open, we could drive and see each other right now. Pretty cool. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Hopefully in the future we can make that connection. Yes, yes. All right, next question. If you could put one piece of original art in your home, regardless of its current location, price, or availability, what would it be? Wow. Uh, First painting that comes to mind is Casper David Friedrich's Wander Above the Sea of Fog. Uh, I don't know if you know that one. I'm familiar with that. You see the guy from behind, and he's over like a... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like this lone uh, figure, very like existential, um, the subliminal nature of looking out into this, you know, vast expanse. And I think the original's probably in Germany somewhere. But yeah, that would be amazing. Uh, that's been an inspirational piece. And I just love Friedrich's work in general. That's great. That's great. Um, what musician or singer songwriter do you listen to most frequently? And if it's too hard to pick one, you could pick a couple. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I am pretty eclectic. So, like traditionally, I listen to a lot of Al City and Reliant K. Uh, and in more recent years, um, I've gravitated to like Arcade Fire and Judah and the Lion, um, John Mark McMillan too. Mm. I love his his recent work. Um, but even like Enya, who's <laughs> nice. was, was totally. Uh, you know, out there. So it's, it's a, a real mix. You know, knowing, uh, you know, the little that I do about you and your work, I, I'm glad to hear that you're an eclectic music listener. Cause I feel like that music is such a good inspiration for any creativity. And I love to hear you listen to a lot of different stuff. It's awesome. You yeah, hear that sure. Adam Young, we got more than one Owl City fan. You got to come on the podcast, Adam Young. Yes. Yes. <laughs> do that. <laughs> okay. Maybe we can all hang out soon. Yeah, All right, here, this is a doozy of a question, the next one, so I'm, I'm sorry in advance, but what is the most beautiful thing you have ever seen? Yeah, that's such, such a hard question to, to answer. <laughs> um, I'll just say that often, like, my counters out in nature, I think, mm-hmm. are what, what uh, have pressed me the most. Just when I see, like, an exotic bird, like the roseate spoonbill down in Florida is this pink bird that looks kind of like a platypus, <laughs> this last flamingo. Um, I don't know. It's just, like, this uh, divine en- encounter, I guess. Um, I think also just seeing art, too, like... Uh, I remember when I was in England at the Tate Britain, there's this room just dedicated to the, the pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood, which okay. are these 
you know, 19th century painters um, that love nature and, and poetry. And uh, there's just some, yeah, hauntingly beautiful works that still stick out to me. I love that answer. And then a little bit lighter. What's your favorite meal? Oh, I love um, ethnic international foods. So it's it's a hard one. Like I love Indian food. Um, mm. My dad grew up in India. And so at our Tyson annual reunions, we always have Indian food. Um, I also love Thai food as well, like green curry, red mm. curry, the, the peanut sauce. Um, yeah, it's, it's so yummy. Oh, I'm getting hungry now. Oh, man. <laughs> That's that's great. I uh, I recently have been eating more Indian food. My my wife yeah. actually is my wife is a really good cook, and she uh, was gifted a Thai cookbook and has been making some really good stuff out of that. So I'm I'm, I'm expanding nice. my palate with uh, Indian and Southeast Asian foods as well. Cool, I love cool. that stuff. Okay, well, I'm that was great. That was super fun. It um, was. Thank you for that. I, uh, but now, you know, the moment that I have been waiting for since you agreed to come on this episode is, uh, I'm thrilled to introduce, uh, Josh to you guys here. I'm going to read actually, if you're cool with this, Josh, I'm going to read some of your bio that I found on your website. I think you worded it better than I would word it myself. So ladies and gentlemen, Josh Thiessen is an international award-winning artist based near Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Considered one of the world's top 10 prodigy artists and the only known male art prodigy in North America. Thiessen was juried in as the youngest member of International Guild of Realism among foremost realist artists from around the world. Artists for Conservation and Society of Animal Artists and elite groups of the top nature and wildlife artists worldwide. Art Renewal Center USA designated him Associate Living Master and Jonathan Levine Projects chose him as the first place winner out of 2,000 artists in their international competition, Search for the next great artist. Mentored by masters like acclaimed Canadian artist Robert Bateman, Thiessen has exhibited his work since 2016 in over 100 exhibitions, including the National Gallery of Canada and prominent galleries in the United States. He has sold over 150 original works and hundreds of limited edition prints to private and corporate Canadian and international collectors. Featured upwards of 200 times in the press and media, speaking and teaching at 60 venues, making 90 invited art donations to charitable organizations, and establishing his own Arts for a Change Foundation, Thiessen has garnered over 60 awards and honors, including Igor, or I-G-O-R, Creative Achievement, Queen Elizabeth II Diamond Jubilee Medal, and Canada's Top 20 Under 20 for his artistic accomplishment and philanthropic work. And last but not least, in spite of this early success, Thiessen humbly acknowledges that his artistic talent is a gift from God, the interaction between the natural world and man-made structures is a particular interest, often giving rise to metaphors which highlight truth, beauty, and the longing for ultimate restoration in the world. Man, what a resume right there. <laughs> I don't even know where to begin. Um, you know, you have been, you've been called a prodigy. Uh, you, and I'm inspired right off the bat, personally, by the... the various inspirations that you have both in your clear love of nature and biodiversity and being stewards of the planet and then also um just your, your painting itself and then the fact that you are uh you know in more than one way here being recognized as like one of the top young artists alive today <laughs> so again thank you so much for coming on forefront 360 it's 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 a pleasure. I know it is weird hearing your biography read out <laughs> to, to you. Uh, yeah, I've been so fortunate that doors have opened to me. My parents aren't artists, so you know they weren't like the the stage parents or anything who pushed me out there. I was just a lot of people along the way that saw my raw talent and, and helped develop it and expose it to more people. Well, we're thankful for that. Um, so beyond the awesome bio we just heard for any listeners that are just tuning in and they're not familiar with your work, uh, would you be willing to just give like a brief introduction to, I guess, who you are, like your story, and then also what kind of work you do as far as painting? Uh, yeah. So uh, I was born in, in Moscow, Russia and lived in Southern Russia. My Canadian parents were working over there at the time as, as professors, humanitarians, and I had a Russian nanny who did lots of arts and crafts with me from a young age. When we returned home to Canada, my artistic abilities kind of got stagnated just due to the school system and just getting busy with other things. Um, but then 
around nine years old, a uh, local hobbyist pet portrait artist um, discovered me at a children's club and she began passing on to me her skills in, in chalk pastels and really um, passed on to me a, a love for uh, nature and wildlife. And uh, for, from there, I uh, continued to be mentored and under, you know, master artist and then uh, started working full time after I graduated from, from high school. And it became a, a full-time living, which was very uh, surprising. You know, every parent's uh, worst nightmare is that their kid will be a starving artist. <laughs> right. But uh, I've been able to kind of beat the odds and, and also um, develop a, a style that is appreciated in, in the art world and that uh, um, people nationally and internationally have... Uh, purchase my work and it's something that I'm passionate about that's never felt like a job and it's something um you know I really love to do that's awesome um I, I want to hear more about if uh I'll ask this a little later probably but I want to hear more about if you know your your upbringing in Russia and other things and the international kind of heritage of your family have you know how, how that affects your work but before we get to that um so your your painting work has been like sort of under the umbrella of genre, your work has been called hyper realist. Um, but in your own artist statement, you uh, put yourself in the new contemporary style or movement. Could you explain mm-hmm. those those titles to us and what draws you to those? Yeah, yeah. For, for sure. Um, so when I create a painting, of course, like I'm not cognizantly thinking, you know, where this painting will fit within the styles and categories. But I know, you know, labels are helpful for people, so. Um, hyperrealism is kind of the, the, the best fit for me. Um, of course, I don't copy photos, so that's where I wouldn't say I'm a photorealist. Right. I, I like to, you know, really incorporate a lot of imagination and uh, use my, my travels and photography as, as reference. And uh, the new contemporary movement, which is something... Uh, Fairly, fairly new, and it's it's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. I <laughs> granted new contemporary, right. um, but it's like this umbrella term for a movement that really embraces a return to craftsmanship in the art world. So, some of the artists that are associated with this group are like Shepard Fairey, like street artists, and Banksy, as well as like surrealists like Mark Ryden and, and Neil Rausch. And uh, surprisingly. My work kind of got swept into this through hyperrealism and through the the animal-based work that I do that is really liked by this group. Um, And I I won this competition by Jonathan Levine Projects, and uh, his gallery is sort of like the flagship gallery for this movement. So that's how I kind of got uh, associated with this group. But uh, uh, really what you're finding is like a lot of these new contemporary artists are now becoming more accepted in the mainstream contemporary art world. So it's kind of all, all merging, but it was uh, uh, something that, you know, I'm just thankful to, to be um, that my work is uh, appreciated. Right. So ha- have you always, um, so I, I, I guess painting in a realist. So to make this delineation for people that are listening, um, a lot of your work is so it's realistic in the sense that like you know animals and architecture and and landscapes are very realistic in the sense that they look how they look in real life however a lot of the scenes that you paint are are fantastical in in certain ways am i correct in saying that mm-hmm. no yeah it's 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 true and that's why you know sometimes uh, there's some surrealistic elements i guess the way i look at it is that I like to think that my paintings could all theoretically exist in the world. Sure. Like the, the animals that I'm painting, I'm painting anatomically correct. And, and, you know, I've shown with the, the society of animal artists and their judges, they know every single feather on every single wing yeah. of, of every bird. So they're, um, you know, I care about that fidelity to nature, but I also recognize that, that nature isn't untouched by humanity and by, um, you know, architectural structures. And so I've really played with this idea of, of juxtaposing um, what can be, you know, traditional wildlife art and idyllic landscapes with animals and their natural habitats, and then um, contrasting that within 
you know, uh, an old Western town, for for instance, right. or an old Gothic cathedral. And so I, I love kind of the, the metaphors that that can be created in that way. Yeah, that, I love that. Um, and just for my curiosity, have you always painted uh, realistically or have you dabbled in in other forms as well yeah yeah i I have um there's a period that i tried abstract expressionism and and cubism and i still really value and appreciate all styles of work um the impressionists like van gogh i love his color palette uh color is so important uh in my work and so i i really um I, i think appreciate all different styles even though i've kind of landed on my own um I, I still try to be very, you know, exploratory in my practice. That's awesome. Um, so how, walk, walk me through this. So you, there's, I've had the opportunity to look into a little bit of, you know, some of your, I've listened to some other awesome podcasts, uh, interviews that you've been a part of. And I've, you know, spent a lot of time uh, recently just enjoying like looking into your work. And so I, I see that there's, there's a pretty uh, like, substantial process to producing a piece of your work from start to finish. So how do you, when, how do you start when you're thinking, okay, I'm going to begin on a new piece? Like, where do you start? Do you, uh, do you go right up to the canvas or are you someone who kind of plans things out before you even touch the paint? Like what kind of a, how do you approach a new piece? Yeah, I, I'm very slow and, and methodical, and that's just my, my personality. I never do something quick. <laughs> so the paintings, they can take years to develop before they actually get painted. So I have uh, sketchbooks, and I, I re-sketch the idea multiple times. And I just have found over the years that uh, the, the, the first idea, the nucleus of the ideas, is usually the, the best idea, but... Um, it accrues meaning over time. Like I write uh, brief notes on the back, um, books that I read, um, scripture. There's so many different points of of reference. So uh, before I even get painting, I I have a pretty good idea of where the work is going to go. And uh, I start with, um, you know, Photoshop um, mock-ups, creating, you know, multiple compositions and uh, working a lot of things out ahead of time. And then uh, color studies and uh, sketch out the composition on the the panel. I paint on on wood, mm-hmm. so it's a you know hard surface, and they can be cut out to any shape or size. I start on like a fifty percent gray primer, and then begin in you know I sketch out in perspective the the composition, do acrylic underpainting, and then ninety percent of the work is just working on the detail in, in oils. Um, right. And so I, I pre-mix the, the paints so all ahead of time. So I'll have like maybe 30, 30 paints just for, for one painting, 30 tubes. And so I keep a limited color palette and uh, can, yeah, finish, go, go from there and, and stay within uh, a, certain, a certain limit. And maybe I'll make some, some changes along the way. But yeah, that's kind of in brief. Uh, but yeah, the paintings can take hundreds and hundreds of hours. Wow. So, so with your... I mean, with your attention to detail, have you ever been, you know, like 80 or 90% done with a piece and then had some sort of error come up and, or, or do you, yeah. what, what happens uh, when yeah. that happens? Uh, that, that happened earlier on. I can think one or two paintings, which I like repainted over completely. Um, recently though, I, I did have like a varnishing disaster. Oh no. Uh, one of my largest paintings, which was uh, so so scary, I was able to to fix it and remove it and not damage the paint. So, uh, yeah, there's it's still a learning a learning process for sure. Yeah, I I, I don't know if I could handle the anxiety. <laughs> working on one piece for hundreds of hours and then you know knowing that every you know I don't know <laughs> I uh, I I admire you for doing it. Um, <laughs> Thanks. So. I guess other, so how you approach your, your pieces, uh, physically, but how do you approach? So you've, as you said, you lived in Russia, you live in Canada, you've traveled a lot. Your family has been, um, around the globe and you've also studied philosophy and theology and obviously other artists. Um, how would you say 
like how do you approach your creativity and your work from that perspective, kind of from a philosophical um, or theological perspective? Yeah, so I, I've definitely found that that art has been an avenue that I really wrestle with the, the deep questions of life. And so uh, I, I feel the closest to God. I feel um, like it's a it's an avenue that you know, I can express the things that I'm thinking about. And I also enjoy writing and, and uh, post-secondary education afforded me that, that opportunity to, to study philosophy and theology and, and biblical studies. Um, I mean, the, the Bible is a very big inspiration for me. And, and throughout history, uh, many artists like, you know, Rembrandt or Michelangelo have taken inspiration from the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of uh, have my, my own take. I emphasize more of the uh, environmental creation care themes of of scripture um but yeah like faith is very important to me in my work but i've i've known that a lot of people who aren't christians who don't share my my worldview just appreciate the, the quality in my work and so mm-hmm. being able to be collected um by collectors and and have galleries express interest in my work uh, and just see the, the excellence in it. I mean, that's what I aspire for. A lot of Christian art has been sadly quite poor in quality in the right. last century. Um, so I think uh, that that's what I really try to aim for and, and really not do art that's, you know, dogmatic, but hopefully opens a, a conversation in the galleries I, I show with. Yeah, our, uh, our sort of motto over here at Forefront is uh, excellent art, authentic faith. So yeah, I, I that, totally resonate with so that's that. That's what we're trying to get, right? But um, no, that that's awesome. And so I know this is a this is a deep question, but I'm going to throw it your way anyway. What is your theology of art? Like how how do you feel that? Um, like how does how does God look at art in your view? Yeah, so I think uh, for one, uh, in, in Christian faith, there's the concept of the Imago Dei that image of God that we are made in, in his likeness and, and God is the ultimate master artist. And we're also given um, heightened creative abilities. I think we're all creative. Uh, it doesn't mean that everyone is you know, a professional artist per se, um, but I think we can start there. I think also um, art is, is so diverse and wide ranging. Some do art for specific purposes in the church, um, more teaching based and some more for, uh, you know, praise and and worship music. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, for, for those who simply want to, uh, value truth, beauty, and goodness, uh, that, that a lot of people resonate with. And there's even those who want to do art that, um, critique something like whether it's, you know, social justice oriented. Mm -hmm. And so I think all those, uses of art are, are really fair. And um, I, I definitely also want to say that art isn't something just for elite few people that, you know, sometimes there's this kind of the ivory tower of, sure. of uh, the art establishment. And uh, with my work, I've found that people uh, across the socioeconomic spectrum uh, find something that they can gravitate to and, and uh, people of all ages and cultural backgrounds. And so that's what I, I really love about art. And uh, I think as, as a believer myself, uh, I want to see the, the fullness and brokenness of the world through my art, but also have a, a hopeful and prophetic voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least that's what I aspire to do by seeing uh, the future restoration of, of creation. And uh, that's, uh, yeah, so that's kind of in a nutshell what I I think about a big question. Yeah, no, beautiful. So the, I see the inspiration. Um, so looking at your work, Josh has been super kind and actually sent us at forefront, a, a PDF copy of his upcoming book streams in the wasteland. Uh, we spent a lot of time with it. We love it. Um, and so the, the interaction between the natural world and man-made structures, how, how you put it yourself, um, both visually, so we have we have animals and natural things interacting directly with structures in the form of of buildings, but also man made structures. I I think in the form of like society itself, like human society, which has uh, 
inserted itself sometimes violently into, you know, nature. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? Like I, I'm very intrigued by and refreshed by seeing someone who has an authentic faith and is interested in excellent art and also has a heart for, uh, environmental stewardship. I, I think, uh, mm. well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I think you'll agree with me that that's a kind of a rare combo. I feel like a lot of times when I talk to people in the, the Christian church, at least in the United States, uh, you know, hopefully it's better in Canada, but at least in the United States, I, I find it hard to find people that are truly passionate about, um, conservation and protection of nature and also, uh, Christian faith and also, man-made beauty at the same time that kind of three-way venn diagram there so yeah can we just talk about that a little bit yeah yeah you know it it is sad that um although you know christians have been on the forefront of many social causes over the years like abolishing slavery and civil rights and opening hospitals and orphanages and uh, caring for the poor um Unfortunately, they've often been the most opposed to caring for the environment, mm-hmm. um, especially in the West. And there's lots of political reasons for that and, and consumeristic reasons. Um, but, you know, in my uh, Streams in the Wasteland book, and I've, I've talked about this before, uh, that oftentimes it comes from, you know, a human-centric reading of, of the Bible, of having dominion and ownership over the earth, which actually is, is wrong because, you know, Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and, and everything mm-hmm. in it, and that Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden to um, serve and protect nature. And so instead of kind of this concept of, of trashing the earth and escaping to heaven, um, the biblical story is really about the restoration uh, of creation. And so that's what I, I, I try to do through my, you know, donating my work to conservation efforts is to be part of this um, redemptive work. And uh, while drastic changes do need to take place for the ecological crisis that we find ourselves in with, you know, with climate change. um, I also want to address that there is a a spiritual uh, component and there needs to be spiritual renewal just because, you know, so many climate scientists over the years had said we've we've hit people with so many scientific facts, but mm. nothing really changes. And they recognize that it's it's the role of you know morality and and religion that has has even a greater influence on people. And specifically for for me, the Christian tradition addressing you know things like like greed and power. And um, I, I try not to have a legalistic approach or kind of a guilt based mm-hmm. approach. Um, but really, hopefully, to show the beauty of the natural world, because people only care for what they already appreciate and see, and yeah. and, and art really uh, is is instrumental in that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I I think um, it resonates with me that we have to, if we want to inspire any sort of change on a grand scale, like it needs to be something that happens in the heart and in the spirit, you know, because people. Mm-hmm people don't want to make uh, dramatic changes to their life based on some numbers that have been thrown their way. You know, um, <laughs> I, I definitely think that uh, something too, like so many people that live, you know, uh, urban or suburban lives, even that are pretty, you know, that are separated from nature on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do think that one of the most powerful things can be just uh, almost getting the reminder that these mm. things are out there. And I and I think often we get the we get the reminder, you know, maybe in a in a legalistic way or whatnot, in you know, like certain nature documentaries or something, we get the reminder couched with, look, these things are going away. They're endangered. And that's very true. Mm. But I think sometimes the most powerful thing is just seeing a beautiful image of a, you know, a wolf or a bird or something that we don't see in our daily lives and being like, wow. The, the world is so much bigger than, you know, whatever my, my commute and my office and the inside of my mm-hmm. TV room, you know, and I think your work does a brilliant job in kind of just opening, like when I first started looking at your pieces, I felt it actually reminded me of what I felt like when I was a young kid reading 
picture books that had beautiful images showing me like different places in the world and different types of mm-hmm. animals and stuff like that. And when I was a young kid, I loved learning about science. I loved, you know, I, my my dad is actually an environmental science teacher. So when I was oh, growing wow. up, okay. yeah. So when I was <laughs> cool. growing up, we had books all over the house with, you know, diagrams of the food chain and, and pictures of different biomes and the different animals that live in those places. And right away when I started looking at um, the pieces involved with streams in the wasteland, I was transported back to that child wonder that I had of like, wow, look at these animals. I would love to see them. I would love to see these landscapes and stuff. And that just was so inspiring to me. Wow, that that's awesome. Yeah, I love how you connect with that. And you know, so many of us um, start out in life, kids love animals, they love nature, but it's it sadly sometimes kind of uh, beat out of them by the yeah. time they, they grow up. And, and it's same with like art itself. Like, you know, Picasso said every child is an artist and they eventually lose that. But there there is this uh, unifying element between art and nature, this appreciation of beauty and wonder that... Mm-hmm. Um, I think is, you know, there's that, that hymn for the beauty of the earth. And it's just uh, that, that's something that, that drives me and motivates me um, to environmental care. And isn't it so true that, that kids, like children automatically, uh, you know, for the most part have a love of not only animals and nature and, and diversity, but also just of beauty. Like, Mm -hmm. and, and they also have a much broader, uh, I guess, definition of beauty. Like kids will look at, you know, drawings that a friend of theirs in kindergarten did that by our adult, you know, factory pressed standard is, you know, not very good. And kids will admire the beauty of each other's creativity, you know, and, and as adults, we often feel like our creativity is not worth anybody's time if it's not, mm-hmm. you know, immaculate. And Exactly, uh, yeah. We really should learn a lot from the kids. But uh, we've, we've mentioned streams in the wasteland a few times here. Uh, would you, before we go any further with that, would you mind uh, just telling our listeners about, uh, so mm-hmm. the, book, the book's coming out in August. Would you tell a little bit about the book and, and what that project has been like? Yeah, definitely. So Streams in the Wasteland is a hardcover monograph book that catalogs uh, six years of painting that I've been working on this this series. And uh, uh, it was exhibited uh, in galleries from New York to Los Angeles in, in two different Streams in the Wasteland exhibitions. And so I put out a, a monograph book in 2016, which kind of cataloged the first 10 years of my career. But now this new body of work, I think, really shows uh, a development in, in style as I kind of find my voice um, now that I'm a, a little bit older. I'm, I'm 25 now. Um, just a little bit about this painting series. Uh, it was uh, inspired by um, the, the book of Isaiah and the prophetic books in uh, the Old Testament of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible where animals have dominion over uh, the world empires. And it's kind of this, the tables are, are turned that because humans have, have shirked their, their calling of faithfulness to the creator and to uh, nature and animals, um, they're given over basically uh, to, to nature. And I was really uh, struck by this, this one uh, verse uh, in Isaiah 43 about, this is Isaiah recording the word of, God, the wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And so I I love the the idea of, you know, infusing hope within the post-apocalyptic wasteland that we find ourselves in, that this has just continued um, since then over the the centuries of civilizations um, falling. And um, I I hope to, uh, you know... infuse hope and also, um, you know, get people thinking to some of the reasons why, uh, we, we think we should, uh, take care of the environment. So, yeah. That's such a great inspiration. I love that, that verse. So, Mm -hmm. so right now I'm looking through, uh, with fresh eyes, I'm looking through some of the pieces and I, I'm getting even like a second, uh, like shiver of joy after hearing you say that the um so 
one of my one of my favorite pieces in the book is um, entitled Occidental Babylon, and it uh, it shows a pack of hyenas prowling through kind of a spooky old west town. This piece is pretty large, right? In yeah, it's it's one of my largest. It's like six and a half by four and a half feet. Wow. Okay. And and there's a lot of detail in there. Uh, down. I mean, the hyenas being you know extremely realistic, and there's a uh, kind of like scrub grass in the background. Uh, tons of detail there. And then not to mention, uh, I'm just looking right now and being wowed by the uh, like the shingles on the roofs of these. Uh, buildings, you know, going away from the viewer, uh, just just awesome. And the you even managed to get this beautiful like haze, you know, when looking at the uh, the the church building directly in the back, you know, so you can see the distance there. So just so so cool. But um, what's the this is the one that I thought of right away when you were saying kind of the the animals and and nature kind of being. Uh, or the world kind of being given back over to that is yeah 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 that one to occidental babylon um western babylon which kind of implies so so the meeting um right. where basically uh the the california gold rush um millions of dollars of gold were were basically uh scavenged from from the land and you know indigenous peoples were were displaced and uh, sadly, after a few short decades, um, this mining town, this one was specifically in, in Bodie, California, was mm-hmm. you know completely abandoned. And I thought, you know, would it be interesting to place these hyenas that are kind of symbolic of the, the scavengers mm-hmm. um, that the, uh, the miners were? And so it's a bit of a cautionary uh, tale. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad that that you connected with that one. Yeah, for sure. The um, the the connection between like, you know, obviously many people have drawn the connection between the United States and and this kind of a new Babylon, you know. But I love the the even more pinpointed comparison between like a specific town that was you know robbed of its natural wealth um, to create you know, wealth and, and idols and all sorts of other things mm-hmm. elsewhere. You know, it's just, that's, that's, yeah. Yeah. Because like, that's, I was uh, playing on the idea like in scripture that, you know, uh, Babylon um, was this uh, center for idol worship. And also uh, the historians say the place where the greatest amount of gold was. And mm-hmm. so uh, that I like kind of taking these, these metaphors and seeing things, you know, repeat, repeat themselves over history. Um, yeah, I'm glad you picked up on that. Yeah. Um, and then an, another one, peace, like a river, um, showing a river with orcas, uh, swimming through the river, which looks like a, a desert Southwest kind of, uh, environment. And like, what a cool, um, like you said earlier, like something that, you know, theoretically could happen, but but also seems like such a fantasy, especially in our current uh, environmental kind of standing that like orcas would swim, you know, in in a river, sort of inland, in a in a dry place. So fascinating. Um, and then of course the Isaiah connection, like the the rivers in the wasteland. There, mm-hmm. um, I also love that uh, you. Uh, being from Western New York here, I also have been to Marine Land and have been inspired okay, yeah. by uh, orcas. So, um, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that one. Uh, yeah, so Peace Like a River, it's this uh, painting actually shaped in sort of uh, a river S curve, and there are these pod of orcas, as you described, um, swimming down this, this uh, canyon river. And I was uh, inspired by. Uh, some of the documentaries that have come out, like Blackfish, about uh, whale captivity and um, the, the the harm it causes to cetaceans, whales, and uh, thinking about, you know, would it be kind of interesting to show the, the hope of them being uh, released and mm-hmm. uh, biblically the metaphor of a river um, cutting through a dry, barren wasteland is um, a metaphor for... 
uh, hope and justice, uh, which will one day uh, uh, reign. And so uh, it's it's a call to also uh, uh, stand up for uh, you know whales in captivity. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a a bill that was passed in Canada called the Free Willy Bill, which. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you can't uh, take new whales into captivity, um, but there are still marine parks around the world. And then, of course, uh, you know, whales in the, the ocean that are, are pressured due to uh, habitat loss with, with fishing. So um, my work has, you know, the, the, the future hope element, but then also hopefully like a, a present call to action. Right. Yeah. And, and it's, it's encouraging to know that God will not only restore humanity, you know, ultimately, but God will restore all of creation. And, and God, uh, while hum, humans being made in the image of God have a unique place, uh, you know, in creation, God created a lot of things beyond humans. And, and it is mm-hmm. great to know that he will restore that. But also, like, you, like you're saying, I, I feel the call to action because um, we're not meant to just say as Christians, like, oh, yes, one day Jesus will return and he'll fix everything. But for now, we need to do whatever we can to line our pockets and fuel our uh, vehicles and factories and, you know, he'll fix mm-hmm. it all later. You know, and, and I feel like that is the kind of position with which Christians in – at least in North America for the past, you know, hundred years have been viewing things as like, oh yeah, like it'd be nice if we could protect these things, but we have dominion here and we need to do these things, you know, so yeah. Mm-hmm. Staying on the theme of, of whales, uh, one of the other pieces that really sticks out to me is whale hymn. So it shows this underwater scene of a whale swimming in what looks like, you know, ocean water. Uh, but the ocean water is viewed through the windows of an abandoned cathedral. So as, as a viewer, we're looking through the cathedral, uh, and then through the windows, we see the whale swimming outside. And then also inside the church, uh, we see grass and other greenery and roses growing that look very healthy and green inside this this old church. So what's the inspiration for that one? So I uh, came across this old cathedral that had been bombed after uh, the, the war. It was in central London. And I uh, was thinking of the, the idea how this place was once um, a place of, of worship where people sang uh, hymns to their creator, but that um, creation itself, the, the whales of the ocean also um, bring honor to, to God. Mm-hmm. And so I was uh, uh, researching how uh, humpback whales have this special ability to actually sing and uh, develop these songs that they pass on from, from generation to generation, uh, these, these haunting calls. And so it was a, a reminder to me because I was working on this painting during um, – a challenging time in my life uh, with with my health, going through treatment for for Lyme disease, and I needed the reminder that uh, to to also you know give give praise to my Creator um, in spite of my, my illness and the challenges that I experience. So, yeah, that's so cool. I think this one as well does such a good job of communicating to me this this reality that. Um, Human, like nature, uh, as as uh, Jeff Goldblum says in in uh, Jurassic Park, life finds a way. But the the fact that like nature being gods, you know, is very resilient, and and humans, like especially, you know, thinking of uh, the fallout of World War Two and things like the Cold War and stuff like that, you know, humans have come very dangerously close in in the recent past to annihilating ourselves. But it's it's a good reminder that God is is faithful uh, even to the non-human parts of His creation, and you know even if humans were to you know completely abandon an area, nature is going to come back very quickly. You know, in, in most cases, exactly. um, which is uh, that really interests me. And I, I'm assuming you feel this way, but but do you feel that uh, your paintings 
are are hymns to the creator in themselves? Is that your form of singing? Uh, yeah, I yeah, I I think that's a the interest that's an interesting way of putting it. Um I'm not musically talented at all, so <laughs> maybe my, my paintings do kind of serve a similar uh function for, for people. Um I hope my work does have a, a meditative element to them uh, that people can contemplate because uh, uh, of course I, my paintings don't stand and uh, don't replace, you know, experiences in the, in the outdoors. But when you uh, zero in on, on one aspect of nature and, and take time to really um, ponder it, its weight and, and beauty, um, I, I do hope it, it has uh, an effect of, of opening people up to, uh, the, the the creator to God mm-hmm. and that uh, it would cause us to uh, you know ask questions and ponder mm-hmm. for sure. So I d- I just remembered I I'd love to talk a little bit about your studio. So you have you have a studio and where you can view nature while you're painting, correct? Mm-hmm. So so how what does your your setup look like? Uh, so I am in the the sunroom of my, my family's home. It has a separate entrance, and so I have uh, studio visitors that that can see the work that I have on display. And uh, yeah, I have a, a beautiful view out, out through the windows to um, the Niagara Escarpment, and uh, like I was saying earlier, birds and and chipmunks mm-hmm. and squirrels. We have actually a a mother robin who's just laid her her eggs in our gazebo <laughs> and so we we have lots of critters we had a fox the other week uh late at night um so yeah you never know what we're gonna what we're gonna see but it, it is an inspiring place for me to work in what a beautiful place to paint that sounds great um so you say you mentioned that you're not musical but um your brother uh, provided a soundtrack to accompany Streams in a Wasteland, the book, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so uh, in in the book, um, I have the, the paintings uh, and the, the stories that I write to go with them. And on each painting, there's, there's a number, an icon of uh, headphones, and that corresponds to the the musical track that that my brother uh, recorded to uh, accompany the painting and uh, extend and interpret the emotional and geographic location of of the work. And so uh, I asked him if he'd be interested in this. Um, this is a, a pretty big project. Each um, song is over a hundred tracks. So it's wow. like a, a full like Hans Zimmer esque kind of wow. uh, soundtrack. There's uh, he's recorded like eight string guitar, classical guitar, harmonica, banjo, uh, djembe, and then he's uh, commissioned eighteen other musicians from around the world oh my uh, to also compose um, instruments like the cello and uh, it, it's just yeah it, I, I'm so pleased with how it's turned out and so well well people. Um, look at the art in the book. They can put the, the CD in, listen to the, the music track by track, or uh, stream it through Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, and so we thought this would be make the, the the book experience even more multidisciplinary. Yeah, absolutely. What a awesome, I'm sure there's a better word for it than this, but what a great like multimedia experience. Like the fact that you can have the music and like your writing that accompanies the pieces and everything like i it's just like a feast man it's an art feast i'm so excited um where can so the book doesn't come out until august right yeah Mm -hmm. so can we pre-order it where could someone pre-order it can you buy it now or do we have to wait till then yeah so you can pre-order it on my website at joshdeason.com uh, it will be available on Amazon in August when it's released. And so the book comes in uh, a gallery edition, which comes with a CD, and then also a, a collector's edition, um, which includes an original concept sketch mm-hmm. of, of one of the, the paintings, of each painting in the in the book. So, uh, yeah, just uh, uh, check that out on joshjason.com. There's more uh, images and, and reviews from, from the book, which I, I'm very, very grateful for. Yeah. 
And we'll, of course, uh, have that linked in the episode. So if you go wherever you're listening to this episode of Forefront 360, you can uh, link right through to that there, which is great. Um, how many pieces are in the, or how many of your pieces are in the book? Uh, there are 17 paintings in the book, and uh, uh, those, you know, part of the, the series. And then uh, in the synopsis portion of the book, there are several uh, concept sketches, uh, which I, I haven't shown before, so people can kind of see the, the process um, uh, that, that went into the, the final paintings. And lots of, you know, close-up shots of details of the paintings uh, to kind of uh, give the, the best chance at, at seeing the work in, in detail if you uh, can't see the paintings in person. In, in your bio, you've, you know, we talked about this, but you've been hailed by more than one place as a prodigy and, and as a living master. How do you feel about these titles or labels? Are they encouraging to you or do they add pressure or how do you feel about being a living master? <laughs> well, I mean, first of all, I am very honored uh, to, to be designated as a living master by the, the Art Renewal Center. It's like the world's leading organization for, for realism. And I was, you know, the youngest one that they, they gave this um, honor to. Uh, and then the, the prodigy story was something that sort of that happened like after the fact, like when I was 17, this psychology professor from Ohio State University that, that studies prodigies um, said, you know, I want to include you in this study and uh, uh, tell your story in a book that I'm, I'm publishing. And so she was the one uh, that, that deemed my brother and me as, as a prodigy and did all mm. these, you know, DNA tests and IQ <laughs> tests. Uh, it was pretty, it was pretty evasive. Um, but honestly, uh, it's not so much the, the labels. I mean, I don't go around, you know, telling sure, people, Hey, sure. I'm a prodigy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, it can be challenging more with relating to peers my age. Mm. Uh, I, I think it, it's it's hard because I have uh, a challenge just relate having things to relate to uh, with with people my age, and so that can sometimes feel a little bit lonely, a little bit hurtful. Um, sure. Because like my my life that that I've lived so far has been really in an adult's world, like mm -hmm. from. Uh, a preteen onwards where I was showing in the States with artists double to triple my age and they were my, my colleagues and um, I, I totally love talking with them but uh, then sometimes it, it is challenging uh, re relating to, to people my age so um, that's that's something that um, I, I, I'm working through personally. Josh, thanks so much for talking with me today. We're so excited for the release of your book, Streams in the Wasteland, in August, like we talked about. And we're really excited to stay in touch with you, especially seeing that, you know, once these borders open, we're we're close. We can, I'd love to uh, connect. But as always, listeners, keep striving for excellent art and authentic faith. 